Ah, wonderful. Alpha is a practical introduction to the Christian faith. And I guess the question there is, where do we begin? Where do we start when we think about the Christian faith, what it is that Christians purport to believe as we begin our own exploration? Where do we begin? I don't, I don't want to begin by talking about the church. Um, I quite like the fact we're not in the church. Uh, I'm trying to look as unchurchy as I possibly can, given that I'm a vicar. Um, because, I, I don't know about you, but I think most people have one or two fixed and preconceived ideas of Christianity because of their experience of the church. Um, many of us, I don't want to presume on anything here uh, with you, but many of us perhaps went to a church service, maybe via our school, or, or there was some kind of occasion going on, a harvest festival, and, and we went as primary school children from our wonderful, colourful, bright, and multi-dimensional classrooms at primary school, all the big primary colours and displays on the wall, and then mum or dad, or whoever it might have been, dragged us along to church, the land that time forgot, <laughs> where it's dark and dank and smells of dead people. And as a child, you're trying to sort of, you know, the real world was, was my classroom and, and my life and my friends. I could shout and scream in, you know, in the playground and so on. But in church, shh, shh. And, and look to the front as well. Did you ever have that if you were... Look to the front, don't look behind. But the lady with the hair coming out of her nose, she's behind. I'm seven, I want to stare at her. So kind of church, you know, you grow out of church. And I, and, and maybe all our associations of Christianity are, are lumped in with that. Well, now, we'll, we'll come on to talk about the church later on. But I think one of the greatest discoveries that I ever made was when I discovered that Christianity, the Christian faith, is not so much a religion as a relationship. When I discovered that church isn't a, a place or a pile of bricks with a pointy roof, church is about people, the people who meet in those kind of buildings. And the people who have relationships with each other and with God. And I want to explore how it is that we can come into a relationship with God, because that's what Christians believe right at the heart. It's possible to know God personally. In a personal relationship. Relationships are so important to us. I, I could have picked any number of quotes out of magazines and papers. This, an interview with um, Annie Lennox, former lead singer of the Eurythmics in the, in the 70s and 80s. And she said this in an interview in, in the Times magazine uh, a couple of years ago now. She said, there's still a sense that you need another person to complete you. You need another friend, a best friend. You need a kindred spirit. I've certainly felt that throughout my life. I need to be with someone who gets me, someone who understands me, some place to put my head down. So if that's not available, it's immensely harrowing. It's not good for us to be totally on our own. But I have to say, Annie Lennox goes on, perhaps I'm beginning to accept that maybe that's an illusion. Maybe actually one has to be at peace with oneself. Don't look outside oneself for answers. The answers are inside. That's what all the books say anyway. Annie Lennox. All the books say the answers on the inside. They certainly do. Did you get the sort of junk mail through the, through the post? 
Uh, and this came through, again, a little while ago. Um, a free gift, see inside for details, mind, body and spirit. And, and here, unlock your true potential. And the answer apparently is within. That's, that's all we have to do. Enrich your life. Connect with your soul. Experience inner peace. Achieve emotional fulfillment. Create harmony in your life. All, all of that, you just have to buy these books. <laughs> um, and, but look at the choice. All these books you can buy and, um, and you'll discover the answer is within. And, and the reason why uh, people make so much money from all those catalogues and so on is because um, so many people are convinced that the answer lies within. That if we search, we'll reconnect, we'll find harmony within ourselves. And there are plenty of people around who are there to help you, like Anthony Robbins. You come across Anthony Robbins. Make it happen, says Anthony Robbins with his square jaw. Uh, oh, look, hang on. It's a, you only have to pay $38,000 a year, and then he will make it happen for you. The key is, Anthony Robbins says, you have to have the guts to go for it. No matter what your starting point, this information will get you on the right path. The key difference between changing and transforming your life, according to Anthony Robbins, is this course you can do. You'll experience life in a whole new way. How to be incredibly happy and fulfilled. Allow Tony Robbins to prove to you that you can do it. I, I, I don't know Tony Robbins, and I've not been on his course, so I want to be guarded with what I say. But I, I just wonder this. In 2,000 years' time, will the world have heard of Anthony Robbins? Because 2,000 years ago, a penniless preacher called Jesus of Nazareth walked this earth and nearly a third of the entire population of the world today claim to worship him. So that's why I want to start with Jesus. Jesus Christ. Christ is just a title. It, it, it means the chosen one or the anointed one. It, it's, it's not his surname. It's his, his title. And uh, Christianity, Christianity derives its name from Christ, Jesus Christ. And I want to start with, with Jesus, and, and, and I'd love it if our kind of conversation and discussion, in, in a sense, begins with him. Because Christians claim that Jesus is the answer to so many of the questions, the fundamental questions that, that many of us have from time to time in our lives here on earth. What's God like? I mean, if God exists... Why doesn't he show us what he's like? And Christians argue that at Christmas time, we celebrate exactly that. Emmanuel is another nickname given to, to Jesus. It means God with us. And uh, the world at that time came to recognize that in this tiny little baby who grew to be this <coughs> wonderful teacher, there was something unique and special. That, that God was demonstrating to us what he was like. He was coming to us in human form so that we might recognize what he's like. Other questions. Does God care about all the suffering in the world? Does God know anything about the injustice that so many people suffer throughout the world today? It's all right for him. He's far away on his comfy cloud strumming his harp. What does he know about the hardship and turmoil 
and suffering of, world, of the world today. But Christians want to argue at the other great Christian festival, Easter. Wrapped up in that is the story of this teacher, this, this great prophet, this Messiah, who was taken before a kangaroo court, faced trumped-up charges for which there was no real evidence. He was beaten and spat upon, mocked and ridiculed, whipped to within inches of his life. His best friends deserted him. One of his friends denied that he even knew him. He was strung up and executed in an extraordinary cruel way. Yes, Christians want to say, God knows something about injustice, about being abandoned, and about cruelty and hardship. How do I know that God loves me? How do I know that he cares about me? And again, Christians want to say the answer begins with Jesus. When we look at how he lived his life here on earth, and over the next few weeks, we'll have a chance to look at little snippets of Jesus' life here, and we'll see that every single person who met Jesus, just as we could have done if we'd lived back then and back there, Every single person who met Jesus with a a, a need or a hope or a want was satisfied in him. He met the rich and the poor. He met the important and the dignified. He met the outcasts. And every single one of them was satisfied and filled with peace or joy. They were healed when they met Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, what do we know about Jesus? What do we actually know about him? You know, one of the things uh, that uh, often strikes people when we, when we look at this particular topic of who is Jesus is that he was real. <laughs> I, I wonder whether it's perhaps generations of um, particularly sort of uh, Gothic art and uh, uh, pre-Renaissance art, too many pictures of him in a sort of white nighty walking about six feet above the ground. Um, everyone, else has, uh, everyone else has sort of got really dirty, grubby feet, but his are pristine and pure. I think, I mean, his toenails were even varnished, I think. And he has um, you know, beautiful long golden hair, which is unusual. How many Jews do you know with long, long straight golden hair? And, and so we, we kind of, somehow we make this, this, this association. He, he wasn't really real. Jesus is a figure of history. He, he lived... On this earth, he walked and talked like you and I do. And there's an extraordinary amount of evidence, not least because he lived at a time which was a high oral culture. Very little was written down. Um, Stories, people learnt uh, and and amassed information through story, the context of story. And um, generations would hand down knowledge and wisdom to future generations through story. And it was remembered. It was, it was an oral tradition. So it, it is remarkable, actually, that so much is actually written down about this historical figure, Jesus. So, for example, uh, the Jewish historian, Josephus, who was writing about a generation after Jesus uh, lived, he writes this in his book, The Antiquities, just a kind of uh, a, 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 a historical annal of the time. He writes this, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. 
a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. And he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He goes on, when Pilate, at this suggestion of the principal men among us, had him condemned to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. Josephus, a a, a Jewish historian, not a Christian, not one of the early believers, yet writing about a man who did amazing deeds, who died, and he says here, uh, appeared alive again so that his followers did not desert him. A a tiny fragment of history, but um, valid nevertheless, testifying to the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. But the, the overwhelming document uh, uh, evidence is in the, the, the New Testament itself. And actually we have, um, you don't need to turn to them now, but I think that we've got some piles of Bibles just uh, to the side of the tables. And if you did want to um, check up some of the references I make on the sheets, I've just lost my sheet, um, which is quite important because I'm going to need it now. Can I borrow one? Thank you. Uh, but on these sheets here, there are uh, page numbers, and they refer to the uh, Bible editions that we've got here. So in the groups, again, if you want to look up something and, and check that out. And if you're listening on the tape, you can get hold of one of these sheets from the church office. Um, so much of the evidence appears in the New Testament documents themselves. And I guess the question there is, can we rely on and trust the New Testament documents, particularly the accounts of Jesus' life written by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Can we rely on them as historical documents? Well, I'd love to refer you to this table on, on the other side of, the, of the, uh, the notes here. This table is taken from um, a book written by F.F. Um, F. Bruce, who's Professor of Biblical Criticism at Manchester University. And uh, here he's setting out the evidence or reliability, if you like, for various historical documents compared to the New Testament documents. So um, if we just follow along the rows, for example, uh, let's take Caesar's Gallic Wars. There, there's various Greek and Roman writers. Um, No historian worth his salt or her salt disbelieves that Caesar existed and that he waged waged war in Gaul. Um, And here we have the evidence for that, uh, written over an eight-year period, 58 to 50 BC, the earliest copy that we have of Caesar's uh, campaign in Gaul, his Gallic War, is AD 900, which, if you look in the next box, that's a time span of 950 years between the earliest fragment we have, the earliest copy, and the original event. And the number of copies that we are known to exist are about nine or ten. Again, we like to look at the one above, Tacitus, Roman historian, writing around about AD 100. The earliest copy we have is about a thousand years later, and there's just 20 copies in existence. Now look, but that, on the weight of that, that's plenty of evidence for a historian to say, this is valid. This is historical fact. So look down at the bottom row. The New Testament documents uh, compiled the various uh, uh, kind of accounts of Jesus' life and then some letters uh, and a, a kind of um, a, a, a kind of big revelatory dream at the end, and they were written over a kind of 60-year period between AD 40 and roughly AD 100. The earliest um, fragments that we have dates AD 130. The earliest 
full manuscript, that's the whole New Testament, dates AD 350. That's a time span you see there of just 300 years. But look at, look at this, the number of copies that we have of the New Testament documents. Thousands in different languages. What was it that compelled these scribes painstakingly to copy out over and over and over and over again the New Testament? I mean, you, you can imagine you know, the, 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 the scribe writing out Tacitus history. You know, you've, you've written 19 copies. That ought to be, oh, all right, one more for luck. I'll, I'll copy out another one. You know, painstaking. Right, 20, that'll do. I've got a life to live. But the New Testament, look, over and over again, there must have been something extraordinary about this history. That almost immediately they were making copies, and so many of them. It's because the content of that history, if you like, the content within the New Testament, and particularly the Gospel accounts, the accounts of Jesus' life, point to this extraordinary figure of Jesus Christ we can trust and rely in the fact that he really existed. He was a real figure of history. So, what do the New Testament documents say of Jesus? What do they tell us? And again, back on the the notes here, I'm just going to literally race through some of these headings. He was human. He was real. Those references there are to the fact that he was tired, that sometimes he was hungry, uh, that he had emotions, Um, At the the grave of his friend Lazarus, who's died, John records, Jesus wept. So he knew emotions just like you and I. He was fully human, just like you or I. And yet, and here is the kind of epicentre of the issue for us tonight. Here's the the, the sort of epicentre, if you like, of the question, who is Jesus? Because although there's no doubt that he was fully human, Jesus himself claimed that he was more than that. That he was not merely human, but he was both man and God. God in human form. If you were to make a comparison with the other religious leaders, or the religious leaders of other world religions like the Buddha or Muhammad, or or philosophies like Confucius or or, or Marx, ideologies. You will not find any other religious or political world leader claiming to be anything other than great or inspired. None of them make the claim that Jesus made, that as a man, he was also God. It is in in making that claim that Jesus stands unique on the stage of world history. And I want to say to you, I think that's an outrageous claim to make. I think that's unbelievable. I mean, that's an outrageous claim to make, that a human being is God. But that's the claim that Jesus makes. That's the claim that Christians understand Jesus makes. It's on that basis that Christians follow Jesus, devote themselves to him. So I think it's important for the rest of this evening and the rest of this course that we interrogate this claim. Because 
If it isn't true, the whole of Christianity is a sham. It's a lie. It's hypocrisy. And it ought to be thrown out. And all the Christians with it. But if it's true that Jesus is who he says he was, man and God, then there are all sorts of challenges and claims that that makes on our lives. Let's look very briefly at some of the evidence. And you'll see just from the headings here. So much of what Jesus talked about, he pointed to him himself. Because he knew that in pointing to himself, he was pointing through the fact that he was a man to God in him. He said to his followers at the time, who were you know, wanting to know what God was like, show us the Father, they said. And he said, I am the way to the Father. If you want to come to the Father, follow me. It's in relationship with me. It's in getting to know me, Jesus says. You think of all the books that are around, so like these ones I was holding up here. How do we overcome stress? How do we overcome anxiety? How can we create space in our lives? Jesus said, are you tired? Are you burdened? Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. The, the, the source for life, the energy for life, the kind of harmony for living is found in knowing Jesus. I, uh, I meet a number of people uh, in conversation with them. And, uh, you know, uh, over time they're, they're brave enough to confess that they feel quite oppressed. Um, you know, kind of mentally, almost sort of spiritually weighed down. And I think there is, in a sense, in a figurative sense, quite a lot of darkness around. You read the newspapers and the TV screens. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I've come to dispel the darkness. Psychoanalysts in the last century, they discovered uh, and kind of described the human condition as as basically a hunger. A hunger for acceptance, a hunger for love, a hunger for significance. Jesus said... I am the bread of life. If you feed on me, indeed Christians reenact a memory of Jesus by, by breaking some bread, so that we might, as it were, feed on Jesus. But that's legitimate because he said, I am the bread. I will satisfy the deep inner hunger that resides in every human heart. All of it centred on him. Not so that he puffs himself up, but so that in coming to Jesus, we come to God in Jesus. Because he's fully human and fully divine. Indirect claims, if you like. But one direct claim, um, and uh, I'm just going to read a little bit from John's account of Jesus' life. It's chapter 10 and uh, verses. The Bible is broken up into into chapters and then um, verses, so it's just easy to find our way around. And this is in the notes, and you might want to look at it later. He said, uh, in front of some people who were um, his enemies, I guess, and uh, out to get him, he said this, I and the Father are one. And by the Father, he's referring to, to God. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, John records. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because... You 
a mere man claim to be God. You, a mere man, claim to be God. In other words, the people at the time understood what it was that Jesus was claiming. It's not as if we got slightly confused over the ages. Uh, sort of got a slightly wobble picture. People at the time, according to John, they understood that Jesus was making this unique claim. Mere man claiming to be God. When um, Jesus appeared after his death and resurrection, he appeared to his followers. And Thomas, one of the followers, wasn't there. And the other followers said, um, hey, we've seen Jesus. He's, he's been raised from the dead. I, I know that sounds incredible, but they saw with his own, their own eyes. But Thomas, like perhaps some of us, we get this phrase, doubting Thomas, um, from this episode. Thomas said, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And a week later, Jesus appeared to the followers again, and Thomas was there. And when Thomas saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Um, my, my surname is uh, Stillwell. S-T-I-L-W-E-L-L. And sometimes on the phone, or uh, people mishear that. And I, I often encounter people, they come to the door or something, and they say, uh, Mr. Stinwell, or, or Mr. Steerwell. And, and, and uh, when, they, when they call my name, it's slightly inaccurate. I just gently, I just correct them. Oh, no, no, actually it's Stillwell. If, if someone gives me a wrong title, I, cor- I just gently correct them, just put them right. You, you do the same if someone got your name wrong. Thomas said, my Lord and my God... And Jesus did not say, oh, Thomas, that's a, that's a bit over the top. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 play it down a bit. Um, Jesus, said, Jesus said, yeah, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, Thomas, you've got it at last. That's right. Blessed are you, Thomas. And then he said, blessed are all those who haven't seen like you are seeing now and who still believe. Believe that I am God in human form. C.S. Lewis was a famous Christian writer of the last century and he concluded on the evidence for Jesus Christ. He concluded like this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. But let's not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us, and he never intended to. C.S. Lewis. Was he mad? Was he bad? Or was he God in human form? Think of his great teaching. Collected in the, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you think of uh, all the accumulative wisdom down the centuries. You think of all the things that we can do as human beings now. We can unwrap the human genome. We can put a man on the moon. We can put a module on Mars. And within an hour, there are photos coming back on our TV screens. It's extraordinary. But have we improved on the quality of Jesus' teaching back then? Are we wiser, more insightful than he was? Or was his teaching laced from God himself? What about his 
great works recorded in the gospel accounts. How he had power and authority over well, the sea, calming storms. He even raised people from the dead. He cast out demons. There was something extraordinary about the authority and power of Jesus. What about his great love? At his trial, pilots to the crowd, I, I find no charge against this man. Even Pilate, under pressure as he was, could find no basis for a charge. He lived such a pure and perfect life. Nevertheless, when he hung on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Extraordinary courage, extraordinary love. What about the fact that he, in his one life, he fulfilled about 300 Old Testament prophecies or predictions about the Messiah. Like tributaries, they all come together into the river of Jesus' life. What about his life consistent with his teaching? Some of the letters that are written and recorded for us in the New Testament uh, part of the Bible were written within the lifetime and circulated within the lifetime of those who had been around in Jesus' day. Uh, Young men and women at the time of Jesus will have been older men and women but still alive when these letters were circulated claiming that Jesus was without sin. He was like no other human being, perfect morally in that sense, with an unbroken relationship with God. And yet no one refuted those claims. There was no basis for it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm married to, to Jo, uh, because she's my wife. And uh, uh, the wonderful thing about Jo is that she loves me. And the terrifying thing about Jo is that she knows me. Which is to say that out of her loyalty, she probably wouldn't spill the beans. But if I were to go around making some absurd claims about myself... All you'd have to do, like how good I am at washing up and putting my socks in the sock bin, all you'd have to do is pop next door and check it out. She'd soon put you right. And if you had the time, probably on quite a few other things as well. You see, she, she lives with me, so she knows. But the people who'd lived with Jesus, they had nothing to refute the claim that he lived a flawless life. He was unique. Finally, and with this I I finish, we'll go and have some uh, coffee, or the coffee we made, and then into uh, discussion. But finally, the fact that um, along with his death, there is his, his resurrection. He was raised to new life. I don't fully understand this, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this in later weeks. But, but there again, I don't fully understand electricity, but it doesn't mean I live in the dark. <laughs> I don't understand fully how the combustion engine works, but it doesn't mean I don't drive a car. I I, I can live with things that I don't understand. I just trust them, even though I don't have all the knowledge. And I don't understand how Jesus was raised from the dead, but the evidence for me seems to be overwhelming. The disciples and other followers who witnessed him, some people have said, well, they were hallucinating. But you don't tend to find two people having the same hallucination, let alone 400 that Paul records, uh, one crowd of about 400, all saw the Lord at the same time in the uh, the same place. That's not an hallucination, that's that's just his appearing to them. 
Some argue that the authorities stole the body. He didn't really rise from the dead. That uh, the authorities stole the body. But, but the authorities were desperate to stamp out this new emerging faith. And the faith rested on the fact that Jesus Christ died and was raised to new life. That's how he's alive today, these Christians claim. Well, if you're trying to stamp out the claim that he's alive today, all you had to do was produce a corpse. But they never did, because they never could. He was raised. What about the impact down the ages? Thousands and thousands, millions of people down the ages, from every tribe and continent, race and tongue, have come to put their faith in the living Lord Jesus Christ. From a tiny, tiny start, just a handful of 12 men, to this worldwide religion or relationship. It's often said that a huge effect usually has a big cause. And the big cause was that Jesus rose from the dead. And what about the testimony, the story, the experience of people even today, people in this tiny little church here, a little speck in this city itself, a speck really in the world. And yet there are individuals all over the place. Some, uh, your group leaders, for example, here tonight who would claim in some way to know personally Jesus and to know God through Jesus, to claim to have a living relationship with him. So our question tonight, who is Jesus? Now, Ang Harrod is at the back there, I think, pouring us some tea and coffee. It might be quite good if you, if you want to give an order to a, a, maybe a, a team leader or a helper um, of teas and coffees. I think we've got some herbal teas as well. And it looks like there's some biscuits and things. Oh, no, they've already gone out. Um, and then we'll finish in 40 minutes' time at 9.30.